let me take you through just a little bit of the history. This technology actually came out of Stanford Research. And uh, a fellow named Fred Mall, who was a general surgeon from the University of Washington, had already started two companies and uh, was down here and, and was working as the uh, chief medical officer for Guidant. And he saw the technology over at Stanford Research. And it was then, the thought was, is it would be used for uh, telesurgery or to, for, for, for surgeons to be in a safe zone operating on soldiers in the battlefield. He thought that was a pretty lousy idea, but he, he was intrigued with the idea that you could separate the surgeon's hand from the tip of the instrument. And so he and a fellow named Rob Young, who had founded Accuson, as an engineer from Stanford, began the company. And, and that began in early, early 96, really, late 95. Um, and uh, what you saw, that picture was actually one of our late prototypes. You, know, you could see the covers weren't on it and there were some things. Uh, but you know, that's what you do when you're trying to move as quickly as you can and raise money and keep the thing float. Anyway, they licensed the technology out of, F, out of SRI. And the first machine out of SRI was called Lenny, after Leonardo da Vinci. And uh, so the first thing was, to, but it had no articulating instruments and you know, the setup was kind of screwy and no 3D vision. And so we began developing something called Mona after Mona Lisa. So, you know, the engineers name everything. If you go into our offices, you know, all the, all the conference rooms are named after scientists and, and innovators. Anyway, in March, which was just a little after I joined the company, we did our first human trials over in Ghent, uh, Belgium. And we just did some simple procedures, uh, lap coles, uh, which is removing the gallbladder, uh, Nissen fund duplication, where you wrap the stomach around the esophagus for esophageal reflux. And, uh, and we began to suture vessels together uh, openly to, just to see how we handle small structures. And what we really found out is the setup was lousy, the vision was terrible, and there were a lot of things that we needed to improve. So we came back and began working on the first Da Vinci prototype. Morton was not really the name of the system, as John described it. Anyway, in, in, in about 98, we did our first coronary artery bypass did that in two places almost the same day. We did it in, in, in Hospital Bruxelles in Paris and in Leipzig, Germany, both big heart centers. In the end of 98, we shipped our first system to Leipzig, Germany, and began selling in Europe. And uh, 99 was really the first year we, we generated much revenue, and we generated, we sold, said we sold 10 systems, see how they worked. We didn't go out a lot out there that <laughs> we had to take back, and, uh, and did about 10 million revenue. In 2000, um, there was a company called Hartport here that uh, was doing uh, extensively. It was a high-flying company was going to do closed chest coronary artery bypass. And it got in trouble. First, I mean, it had a market cap over a billion dollars at one point in time. Um, they were flying high, um, but the technology didn't work very well. Uh, but they had a lot of great patents, and... Uh, some that could block us from doing closed chest coronary artery bypass. So before they actually got by John, bought by Johnson & Johnson, we licensed uh, their technology for robotic surgery. And in June, did our first public offering. We thought we'd have FDA approval. We've been going through that process, but we didn't. And so as all these things work out, in July, we got FDA approval. Uh, so you know, we all, all, all along the road show, we're telling people, you know, it's in the mail. Uh, anyway, the, so the second year, we did about 26 million in sales. The, in 2001, we got our first thoracoscopic approval. That's operate, to operate in the chest. And our first uh, 
prostatectomy approval, uh, which allows us to do uh, radical prostatectomy to remove the prostate for cancer. And uh, we started developing some five millimeter instruments. We um, did uh, the first 100 Da Vinci prostatectomies. Now that's a big deal because that was our first killer app. Now you'll find in the valley that people talk about a technology looking for an application, and they kind of do that in a kind of a, it's, all, it's not always a compliment. But every really breakthrough technology is exactly that. And if it doesn't find that application, it fails. And if it does, it succeeds. Well, our first one, we did 100 DVPs and uh, da Vinci prostatectomies and, uh, and began our mitral valve and atrial septal defect, which are both cardiac procedures where you close a hole in between the chambers of the heart, and, uh, and did about 56 million in revenue. Still losing a lot of money, about 20 million a year. We were pretty good at that. Mitral valve clearance came in, uh, in 2002. Um, as all new technologies, this was a year that we really made some really dramatic improvements in terms of reliability of the system. We've been working on it and had been coming all along, but some huge steps there. And a hospital in Detroit, Henry Ford Hospital, published their data on da Vinci prostatectomy, and I'll share that with you in a little bit. And that stirred a lot of things, and we began to see that we were on an adoption curve, one that we could quantify and measure. And we did about 72 million. Then in 2003, we, uh, we actually got our, our approval, our first cardiac approval for uh, atrial septal defect repair. Uh, and, oh, no, actually, we had mitral valve before. We got atrial septal defect repair. We put a fourth arm on the system. This was so the, sur the surgeon could self-assist, so that uh, uh, in the taken arm, they could position some tissue, uh, retract it, and then operate. And uh, we turned profitably in quarter 2004, or three, in the second quarter. And then we acquired our competitor. Uh, we were in a huge patent battle. Um, neither one of us giving in ground. We'd won in Delaware. We were about to go down in LA. And, at, uh, and both of us, both companies' stock was embarrassing low. And uh, we had a lot of, we had money and we were gonna survive. Looks like they would go broke. On the other hand, uh, they might bring us down the process. So I swallowed my pride. We acquired them. And then we did a secondary offer to, offering to make sure we had enough money to, uh, to make it through. We actually shouldn't have ever done that, but we did. Um, and we did about 92 million. And then this last year in 2004, we actually got coronary artery bypass approval. This to do uh, uh, cardiac bypass and a, and a broad urology claim and uh, uh, approval for ablation of the heart for eight, um, something called atrial fibrillation. This is when the heart beats uncontrollably and, uh, and you ablate it to, to cut off the electrical signals. Um, we developed some more instruments and, and we had full year, first full year profitability and did about 138. So this is what our, our growth trends looks, looks like in terms of revenue. We were growing about 70, a little over 70% a year. We'll do something over 200 million this year. Um, there are two components of our, our, of our model. We sell systems, and they sell for about a million dollars, maybe a little more. And, uh, and then we sell instruments. And these instruments can be used 10 times, and then they shut off. They have a Dallas chip in them. So it counts usages. And so we have an ongoing revenue stream. And you can see, uh, at the beginning, we had no recurring revenue. And uh, here, recurring revenue is about 40. I guess last year was probably 30-some percent. This year, it's running 46% of our total revenue. 
That's important because hospitals are high cost to serve markets and you need a recurring revenue to continue to, uh, to serve them. Now, let me talk a little bit about how technology like this gets adopted. You know, what we're trying to do is replace traditional surgery, right? Either laparoscopic or oversurgery. And, and, and the model I use is a diffusion model, um, where a substitution process where uh, something spreads through an existing uh, population or medium. And uh, there are two variables, those that have it and those that don't. And, uh, you know, you see color TV, um, cellular phones. When I was at the Boston Consulting Group, I did a lot of this work in terms of, 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 of adoption curves. And, uh, and all these scenarios have in common is that the innovation of the disease is spread by contact. I mean, it's word of mouth, so the susceptible or uninfected become infected. And who will, uh, and we'll call them so those are the adopters. Um, so this it, is kind of a viral uh, phenomenon. And the more adopters there, the, the faster the spread is of, 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 of the technology. Uh, you know, and it, what it tends to be is it tends to be very competitive. This guy who says, it won't work, or why would you do it, uh, with, the, with, with the traditional against the new technology. Once substitution has progressed a few percent, typically, it will displace, ultimately. And it sometimes takes 20 years, and this used to drive some of the people nuts when I tell them the full adoption of this technology will take 20 or 30 years. You know, that didn't go down with, well with Wall Street, and so they, you know, they, weren't, they, they, they thought I was a little too, uh, too pessimistic. The rate of substitution proportional to the remaining market, and uh, the mathematical equation, which you will all recognize, is you know, just a, it's, 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 um, a differential equation. And what it comes down to is it's proportional to the, where, where F is the share of the new product, um, and 1 minus F is the remaining market share. And so as this, as the new market, as the new product becomes larger, there's a, a larger interface. It grows. And, uh, and ultimately, when it starts to displace it, Pretty soon, the remaining market becomes small, and it slows down, and you get an S-shaped curve of one technology replacing the other. Now, you're going to say, well, why is this important? Because I'll, I'll show you in a minute what our, what our curve looks like for a specific procedure. Initially, the old technology has the advantage. Why? It's more reliable. You know, the, the techno the, it, it's well-known, well-understood. Um, there's plenty of service te technicians around. It's, it's reliable. And... But as initial problems are solved, of course, it becomes, uh, it begins to, replace, begins to substitute for the other. New technology adoption typically occurs application by application. It, it doesn't just kind of, and it usually finds an application that the other technology does not serve well. And usually one that's not very attractive to, to, to the current provider. So it's usually a small, uh, typically a small niche. And in surgery, it actually occurs surgical procedure by surgical procedure because they're, they're quite different. And so, you know, it looks like this. You've probably all seen this. Uh, you know, Jeff Moore wrote the book, uh, Crossing the Chasm. Starts out with the innovators. Those guys are easy to sell, but it's hard to maintain their attention. Uh, the early adopters come along. They're willing to tolerate a lot of, a fair amount of, of fiddle factor inconvenience. Uh, and their attention is a little, a little earlier, a little better, but they're always looking at the next thing. And then you begin to use the early majority, and they, they won't tolerate much. I mean, they want it to be as fast. They, they, they just will not uh, tolerate much fiddle factor. And, and then ultimately you get to the late majority and finally the laggards who come kicking and screaming only because they can't do it the old way. It's no longer available. Um, 
there's a surgeon in, uh, in Atlanta, a cardiac surgeon, who says the value of a procedure to a patient is equal to the efficacy of the procedure divided by its invasiveness, perhaps squared. Now, cardiac surgeons have kind of discovered that the hard way because the cardiologist has taken their business with stents. And uh, so if you think about that, you know, and would, if you have a disease, you can take a pill. That would be great. If you, you, know, you, you, will, you will gradually go up to the more invasive procedure as necessary, but you're certainly not going to do it at first. So the comfort zone is over in the far upper left-hand quadrant, right? High efficacy, low invasiveness. That's where we want to be. Now, if I uh, took the procedure that we've been highly successful at, it would be the open prostatectomy. And you see it's over here on the right. It's quite effective, but it's, uh, it's very invasive. Uh, there's an incision from your, your, your pubis to your umbilicus. They have to go in and cut the urethra, take out the prostate, and sew the urethra back together. Now, another option for treatment of prostate cancer is, uh, is radioactive seeds. Another is hormonal treatment. And last is watchful waiting. If you're old enough and you figure you'll outlast it, you're going to die of something else. You don't have anything done. But you can see there's, there's literally a continuum here. Now, Henry Ford, when they published their data, here's what he said. He said, you know, let me poll the patients and see what they're looking for. You know, what, are, what are the priorities of the patient? And the first thing uh, was cancer removal. The second was continence, that they wouldn't have to wear a diaper, that they have urinary continence. Uh, third is potency. They'd like to have sexual intercourse. Uh, Four, they'd like uh, it to be safe. Five, a quick recuperation. And, and six, no blood loss or limited blood loss. So he then compared his data with his open procedures. So Dr. Menon, who's the chief of urology at, at Henry Ford, he found that you know, a cancer removal, he did a lot better job. And this is, this is negative margins, which means that there was no cancer. And so he, he had 94% versus 76 in open procedure. In terms of continence, after six months, he had 60% in open procedure, but 96% with our system. And in terms of, of sexual potency, uh, it doubled from 33% to, uh, to 66% in six months. In safety, he had 2% uh, complications versus 15% complications. The pain score was much lower, and there were no blood transfusions versus about 11%. So, you know. So that's pretty good. Now he said, you know, hey, you can argue that I'm a lousy surgeon. So then he did is he said, let me compare that with the best in class. So he went through all the literature and said, who's the best? And, and, and whatever the published data was, he was actually better except for one paper that showed that they claimed that they had 98% negative margins. Now, so what did we do? So what, what did that really do? That moved us up and to the left, right? So we moved open prostatectomy up and to the left, exactly where the, the consumer would prefer it, and radioactive seeds. And we thought we were taking open procedures and converting those patients over. But it turns out, when I start talking to docs, that we're getting a lot of the seeds patients because they were very, very conscious of, they wanted a minimally invasive procedure, and now there was one that was more effective and, uh, and, and actually probably less painful than seeds. This is just an example of a patient, a little. Can you hear it? Oh. 
So if you plot using that, that formula that I showed earlier, f over 1 minus f, where f is the new technology versus old technology, this is, and, and you do it on a log scale, semi-log scale, this is the curve. And uh, you can see it's got an r squared of about almost 0.99. So pretty, pretty predictable, right? And of course, what that translates into, if you put it onto a, uh, a regular, is this curve. So we're right on it. And this is where we're at this point. We're just starting to march up it. We'll do about 20% of all, all prostatectomies done in this country this year. So, you know, now that's a start, right? Um, this is a, a picture of cardiac. I mean, we, we've got one procedure. You've got one killer app. Okay, that's great. We've got to drive that to 100%, but now we've got to find the others. This is a, this is a patient, uh, you know, uh, with uh, having open heart surgery. And on the far right, you see some with a mediastronotomy where they're cut you know, from here to here. You saw the, saw the breastbone open, and then you wire it shut. Uh, with the system, they move to, first to a, a mini thoracotomy where they do a little, uh, a, a, a little uh, incision under the, uh, the breast and then uh, spread the ribs. But that's pretty painful as well. And then this last one is what you see done when, when they do a fully endoscopic procedure with the system and, uh, and through just a few small holes. Seeing the, the result in how, in how quickly patients recover, uh, there's no way that you want to go back to a bigger incision. We put the camera of the endoscope in here, left arm of the robot up here, right arm here. And then right here is where we have a small incision uh, where we can pass suture uh, back and forth. Kind of move around a little bit. Just show us that. Do you get through your range of motion? Oh, yeah, I have a range of motion, but I have to say that I was just like, I don't want to go. Yeah. But then I tend to get the first surgery. That's pretty good. Most of the surgery. So that's good. And it's amazing when you see uh, doctors who, who they say, well, I don't see the benefit. I mean, it's. So, so you know, the docs that don't believe it, that's fine. 
because the patients do. And with the internet, what do they do? You have a family member that becomes sick, somebody's going to Google it, right? And before long, you know, you get to substitution. I just, as, as I was leaving the office today, I ran out of meeting, checked my email, and somebody sent me this picture of, of a surgeon that this guy just had bypass uh, in, uh, in Virginia, and uh, uh, he sent it to his doc. Six days out, after coronary bypass, he's in a football game. Uh, this is a woman who's had a hysterectomy with the system. So, so the adoption curve, you know, the broader adoption curve is something over, over 20 or 30 years, but it occurs uh, with a, a bunch of individual curves. Prostatectomy first, <coughs> then perhaps hysterectomy, cardiac, etc., until you drive the whole curve. Just a quick uh, understanding of where we might be going or we are going with it. You know, you've now got the surgeon sitting at a console, right? And in a cockpit, now we can deliver all kinds of, of, of things to them. One, we can uh, do teleoperation, which we're doing now. So the surgeon sits at a console, operates on the patient. Uh, we can do training simulation. We, now we can duplicate exactly what they're doing and, and measure every hand movement. Now, some surgeons are, think that's a good idea, and some think it's a pretty lousy idea. But you could, we can move, right now, Right now, Fred Mall used to say that, that, that surgery, surgical training, was like the penal system. It was measured in time. You did your time, you became a surgeon. You know, there is no real standard to measure the capability of a surgeon. This technology, ultimately, may lead us there. Now, we've got lots of, lots of hurdles between now and then, but I think we'd all be happier if we knew the surgeon had a, and the kind of dexterity and the capability we needed. Uh, we can do preoperative planning, and I'm not going to show you all of it, but you know, where, where literally you can do an MRI of the, of, of the patient, a scan of the patient, and, and preoperative plan, even go through the procedure on a, uh, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a morphed model before you enter into it, especially if there's some serious complications. Uh, uh, connectivity, you know, we use tiling, and so we can bring all kinds of information right into the cockpit, kind of a head display from everything from other images to, uh, to a preoperative plan uh, to, to vital uh, uh, statistics. Uh, augmented reality, you know, we can highlight areas. We could create no-fly zones or, 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 uh, or force fields, if you want, where, in fact, you know, there, there's, there, there are things we do not want the surgeon to touch. Uh, it might be a cystic duct or optic nerve, and we just before the procedure, the surgeon just paints that out and no longer can he enter that field. Uh, and uh, we will do uh, uh, telementoring. And, and one of the biggest issues we have with training is the surgeon's doing their first 
or second case, and they need to have another surgeon there. That means the surgeon has to leave his or her practice, fly there, spend the day, fly back, and they've lost the revenue from that. Of course, they're paid to do it, and, uh, but you know, there's a lot of wear and tear on that. So this is an old, old picture. I think we have uh, 300, as of the end of last quarter, I think we had um, 354, 384, I'm trying to remember which, which uh, but, 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 but nearly 400 systems installed worldwide. And, uh, and there's an advantage to that. Again, a first mover advantage is once we've got those installed, we can think about how do we network them using either low, you know, fiber optics or, or low orbiting satellites if, if and when they, they come a reality. But it means that you have a surgeon in Palo Alto and he or she is doing a procedure they've never done before, you know, they can contact someone in Chicago or assist someone in Chicago. And we've, and, and we've done this. We do it, uh, uh, we've done it for, for, uh, with the Army and we've done it uh, on animals back and forth just to, uh, to see how it works. Uh, New York City, uh, Paris. But, 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 but the fact is, is over time, you can create a network where any surgeon call up someone else and say, just sit, you know, I'm about to do this procedure. Could you assist me? Could you uh, be there? And, uh, and all I have to do is sit down and console. Either they have an extra console or they use their console that's not being used. And so, you know, longer term where we're going is, is a Da Vinci surgical network and, uh, and, uh, and, and a lot of other things. But all of a sudden, you know, as these technologies become available, we start to bring together uh, a, whole way, a whole different way of doing it. And, and you know, you got to ask yourself, you know, why would you do it with large instruments through a large incision longer term? Now, will that happen today? No. But in, in 20 or 30 years, uh, in, in probably the time you're running companies and, or, or, or doing uh, great things, uh, you, will, you, know, you, you, you just won't even consider uh, going and having surgery done with somebody's uh, shaky hand through a large incision. Anyway, that's kind of a story of where we're at. I'd be happy to answer any questions. say is all true. Uh, this, and it's not really age-based, but it is in a way. It's mental age, at least attitude. Uh, older surgeons with large practices, you know, really don't want to get out of their comfort zone. Young surgeons are very interested. And, uh, but, you know, uh, but sometimes surgeons, uh, Manny Menon, who is, you know, is doing like six prostatectomies a day with the system, is... Um, probably in his early 50s, so you know, it, it, it varies. Uh, the American College of Surgeons, I don't know that they, uh, you know, we, we, we were at that show. Uh, it's not a particularly big show for us. I mean, it's a big surgery show, but it's primarily general surgery. And, uh, 
as I said before, you know, technology needs to find an application. General surgeons are, um, are a good example of what you're saying. Most of them are laparoscopically trained now. They weren't in, in, the, in, the, in the late 80s, but you know, they've spent the last 10 or 15 years learning to operate with these long sticks where you move left, it moves right, it moves right, you move up, it moves down. But they got pretty good at it, doing certain procedures, like mostly procedures where you're just um, removing an organ, where there's not a lot of reconstruction. And they're very threatened. I mean, I remember uh, being in St. Louis at, uh, at one of the meetings and a young surgeon coming up and looking at it, trying it out and saying, I just spent seven years of my life learning to do what I do. And now that guy, not the forklift operator, but the guard at the door can do it. Now, that's not quite true. But what we do is, you know, I don't know if you read the book, um, um, The Earth is Flat, or the, 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 which is, you know, it's kind of a hot book now. But, but, but we have leveled the playing field. There's no question about that. And that's, a, you know, that's, an H, that's something that goes on all the time. And, and those, as in any situation, those that are benefiting from the status quo don't want it to change. And those that have something to gain do. And what we have is young surgeons. I'll give you an example. A young surgeon who trained at Henry Ford is now at Cornell. Cornell um, is paying for the education of all of his kids. He's a full professor. And he's, you know, just a few years out of his fellowship. Another one took his first job out of his fellowship. I asked him how many, how many prostatectomies he did before he had used the Da Vinci system. He looked at me like it was, you know, like it was a really stupid question. I said, well, I was just trying to understand what being able to do it through small incisions did for your practice. He said, I didn't do any. I just came out of my fellowship. And he went to a community hospital, St. Vincent's down in Birmingham, Alabama. And he just went to Ohio State as a full professor. And they had to change the bylaws of the university to pay him enough to get him. And so those people are very interested. And the more people who see that model are very interested in following it. Any other questions? As an investor a few years ago, I bought the stock just out of curiosity. Thanks for the success. One question that I have, and actually a robotics, a student of robotics, and seven years ago when I was in my graduate program in robotics in Tulane University, I'd asked my advisor about the possibility of medical robotics. And he had said that it would be financially not feasible because potential insurance claims, if there happens to be accident and legal implications, well, you know, a, a large, a, the, first, the first design priority is safety. And so everything we've done is, 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 is fail-safe. I mean, it's try to make the system as fail-safe as possible. And I'd say the engineers, engineers are not usually um, real aggressive. I mean, they're, they're very conservative. And, and, and when it comes to this, you know, a surgeon could slip with a knife much more easily than the system can screw up. But so the damage, we have had patients injured, but never with the system. It's always been surgeon error, or it's often, ones who got the big policy, have been when the robot wasn't even around. But, but if a robot was used, it, could, it, it hits the front page of the newspaper, right? I mean, it's big news. Uh, and you've got a situation where you've got lots of lawyers out there who are plaintiff's lawyers who will chase these things. We have had very little litigation, almost none. But we have had, a, a, well, nobody's come after us. We've had no, I would say, at this point, no litigation. Um, I have one where somebody's just recently wants to talk to our insurance because we had a system error and the patient had to have a large incision and therefore it was our fault. And so, you know, 
I don't know where that will go. It'll be some sort of settlement, probably. But uh, you know, malpractice insurance and, uh, and, and litigation is a serious medical cost, no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, and technology, anything that's highly visible draws flies. Okay, good, good question. Oh, these, are, these instruments are cable-driven, so you have high-tension cables over very small pulleys. Most of you understand that that causes wear, it, and so we've had a, uh, we, we, in fact, that has been one of the major engineering challenges is to try to get the lives as long as we can get them. Now, different instruments, depending upon how much force is exerted on them, have different lives. Uh, but part of it was is, 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 is to make it economically feasible as a company, I mean viable as a company, because you know, one of our, our competitors, the one that failed, had very little recurring revenue stream, almost none. And it, the sad thing about it is, 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 is and it, it, it's just true, the medical community is a very high cost of because of all the training, all the things you need to do to keep it going. And so it was part of our business model as well, but it is a technical reality. Now, uh, we don't have it. You know, it, it, you know, something that's used, a, 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 a scalpel, it usually uses its edge before the cables will wear out. Uh, but, uh, but a grasper uh, and, and some of our power instruments, uh, you know, we've, we've actually, it's been a stress to get 10, 10 uses out of them. Anyway, and, of course, we always want some safety, but that's been a, that has been our big, when I talked about a big gain in, uh, in reliability, it was primarily in instruments and the life of the instruments. Up the far end. What the uh, technology is being able to have uh, video capture? Has that affected uh, the accountability of, of the physicians and the uh, accountability of review of the physicians? Uh, good question. Um, hospitals have always had the ability to, uh, to capture on video uh, their procedures. So they, they, you know, if, if, that's, if they're doing laparoscopic, because you have a camera, you have a video recorder. Um, Hospitals don't always record. I mean, we, we, we have on our logs every motion that the system made and any faults, and so we can always go back to, to, to that, and we know exactly what it did, what in, when instruments were changed, all that sort of thing. Uh, but they don't. You know, in fact, we just had a discussion. One of my board members was saying, you know, I just don't understand why surgeons wouldn't record every procedure. Well, I guess it depends how good a surgeon you are. Uh, but, you know, but it, I haven't seen that as a, as, as a major issue, but it certainly is something that... Uh, in discovery, if, if you recorded the, the procedure, you would, you know, it would be something that would be discoverable. And I actually would think it would, for, for, for most surgeons, you'd, you, that would be a good thing to have. If, in fact, you're not a, not a cowboy. And there are surgeons that are cowboys. So you spoke about uh, driving physician adoption. And I'm curious to know, did you also mention something about you know, patient Googling Sure. 
Well, you're, you're right. There, there, there's, there's two sides of, of, of any adoption curve, right? There's supply and demand, right? And so you've got to, uh, and, and this is, on the demand side, uh, it's probably a word of mouth. It, it, it is, um, um, we've used, we, you know, certainly we use the internet. Uh, there are webcasts uh, of procedures that major universities or major hospitals webcast a, a, a procedure, and so you know you can watch it. Uh, uh, people who are you know ha you have a problem, and you know the patients, the the, the the early adopter disease states we best address are ones where you have a little time, right, where the search, patient can research it or somebody can research their options for them. Um, I had a, it, it, but you know it, it's amazing, especially with prostate cancer, because this is, occurs in a certain age of men, right? And these, these people talk. I, had, I, was, I was at AC, at the American College of Surgeons uh, two weeks ago in San Francisco, and a VC that I've known for a long time and been on some boards with came up to me and said, Lonnie, you know, and he didn't invest, by the way, uh, you know, I, uh, I've just had a real visible experience with your system. He says, you know, the guy across the street had, had just had a prostatectomy, and he's still laid up for about, you know, it's been, a, been over a month. The guy next door to me had one about 12 months ago, and he went down to uh, Southern California and had it done with your system, and he was in his garden the next day. And he says, and, and those stories get told over and over again, but, but we use hospitals advertise, they use billboards, they use uh, TV. The, the technology, uh, you know, in 98, we were on, on, in, in, in 2000, we were on the cover of Life magazine, of Medical Miracles of the Next Millennium. I mean, we, we don't have any problem getting, uh, getting uh, lots of, um, of coverage, but hospitals, uh, 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 we encourage them to promote the procedure. Docs will have um, uh, seminars where patients can come and understand the, 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 the data. Uh, but there's a lot of work we're doing, uh, and primarily on, 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 on kind of viral marketing Techniques that, uh, uh, but the internet is the is, is the most powerful tool we have, and the internet can be used for a couple of things. One, we have it for patient fa patient facing uh, websites, but we also have surgeon facing websites. So you know, uh, uh, trying to give them the latest techniques, you know, uh, and, and, and training uh, videos and, and training uh, instructions. Can you talk a bit about why? Uh, yep. Yeah. I mean, you, it, 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 getting a CMARC is a lot easier than getting through the FDA. And, uh, and, and, and this was new technology, and, and, and it was quite a wild ride, quite frankly. Uh, we um, went to the agency very early. Uh, we were, uh, and we got approval to hold blunt instruments, not to do surgery, but to do assisting. Uh, very quickly. That was pretty easy. But as soon as we wanted to do surgery, we were trying to avoid having to do it procedure by procedure. Uh, but the agency couldn't decide. And there's two routes you can take through the, through the FDA. One is called a PMA, pre-market approval. The one thing that causes a lot of barriers for anybody to follow you, but it also means any time you change the system, you've got to go through the whole process again. It's a killer. All drugs go through a PMA process. The other one is, is called a, five, a 510K, clearance, which is a simpler process. Well, if the agency couldn't decide which one it was, whether it was a PMA or a FAT510K, so we treated it as a PMA, so we had to do trials. The trials in, 
in, in, in, uh, in Europe uh, we could do easily, and they were you know, easy to do first human trials. When we actually did our, our, uh, our clinical trials, uh, we used European and U.S. surgeons, but we actually did it for Nissan uh, uh, duplications, which is uh, to treat GERD. And no, not many doctors do a lot of those, and we had to do a lot. We did them down in Mexico because the diet. Was, and so patients got free Nissan duplications, and we got data to, to go to the agency. But it, it, almost always you go to, you'll go to Europe first. It's just a, it's just a more uh, friendly uh, regulatory environment. I think this fellow right here was. Hi, uh, my name is Dr. Fontana. I'm working on the uh, medicine that you shipped to the disaster in areas. And I was just wondering if uh, uh, the system has been used in Katrina or Tsunami or Pakistan or something? Well, we, 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 had, uh, we had a fair number of systems in, 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 in New Orleans that, uh, you know, that there was no power uh, and uh, and. At least one of them got it, was 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 on the first floor, which wasn't a good place to be. So no, we, we you know we haven't, uh, and and the, we haven't used them in in any uh, any disaster uh, situations at this point in time. What's that? Computer motion? Yeah. What was the second question? Good, good question. Good question. Um, well, you know, this is an. I, I, have any of you read the book uh, *The Innovator's Dilemma* by uh, Christensen from Harvard, or *The Innovator's Solution*? Well, this is a perfect example of that. Computer motion first product was a device that controlled an endoscope. It was it was actually manually, you know, by foot control, and then went to voice control. And so they were. They were working with laparoscopic surgeons. Okay, these are already trained to use the sticks. And so they went to them, a very, a, Yulin Wong, a very good robotics engineer, went to them to ask him what he should build. And what do you think they told him? Do it the way I do it. Do you need, do you need wrists on your instruments? You don't need wrists on your instruments. I didn't use wrists on my instruments. Do you need 3D? No, you don't need 3D. You don't need those things because I can do those things. And so they replicated with robotics what the surgeon was already doing. And what value is that? They didn't take it any further. And, they, and last of all, they didn't have any kind of ongoing revenue stream. So, so actually it was really, they, they, it was our competition. That they promised a lot, but delivered very little, and so, you know, we outsold them dramatically because because we were trying. We we didn't listen. We went to the surgeons who couldn't do laparoscopic surgery, and we said, "What what can we do to help you do that?" Now, uh, where will our competition come from? Where do you think it'll come from? Uh, never. Larger companies don't, in, don't don't do breakthrough technology. Where do you think it'll come from? Hmm? Startups. Well, some startups, perhaps. Yeah, it may come from the lower end. You know, there's some startups trying to do some things 
that have been really struggling, but if, uh, are trying to do articulating instruments uh, manually. Uh, actually, uh, the, Japan. Japan has got a huge robotics initiative, and uh, and uh, they're you know they're coming. Now, we've got 200 and some patents already, and we you know one of the wonderful the dilemma being first, the challenge of being first, you've got lots of hard problems to solve. The advantage of being first, you've got a lot of pro hard problems to solve in your patent. And so uh, we will, uh, you know, we'll be battling. Uh, we, we can see them coming, we're ready. So haptics and time lag and smell. Uh, I, you know, I've never heard doctors say smell was important. Um, but haptics, the, the, uh, and that was a big issue initially. And we, and, we, and we put a lot of money into haptics in the system at that stage. And, we, and, and quite frankly, it was, you know, we lost most of it in, in, in the mechanical inefficiencies coming back, right? So, you know, how do we, are we created? Well, we've got, you know, sensors at the ends of our fingers. Ah. But what we found, what we really found is that with 3D, high precision 3D vision, the surgeon pretty quickly um, adapts really, really fast. They, they, they can see the tension of the tissue. And as they see the tension of the tissue, they pretty have a pretty good idea what, how much, you know, what's going on. And, and pretty soon they think they can feel it. And, and in fact, I just came out of a meeting, you know, of, 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 of haptics and, and where we ranked haptics. And, and, and clearly, the technology is improving. Thin film uh, uh, sensors, there's, uh, there's, 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 there's some good stuff with, the, uh, with optics and things that can, you know, can give us that. And we will continue to drive it. But quite frankly, we, don't, we think it is, at this point in time, is not, it's something we'll need if the competition offers it. But it's not something we believe will bring a, a significant advantage. Where it comes in advantage is when you're, when you're trying to pulse a, a vessel to find out, you know, how calcified, where's a good spot to do the anastomosis. We can also do that with ultrasound, though, and, and other probes. So, uh, it, it, but, but, you know, we always get that from a non-user. I always get a, a, that question about haptics. Uh, for a surgeon, so you got to have haptics. You've got to have a sense of feel. And I'll say, have you ever used the system? They go... Well, no. And, and if, I, if I talk to somebody who's using the system, what? They'll say, don't waste your time. So it's kind of interesting. Now, uh, this, the second question on, 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 on time delay, and that clearly is an issue. Uh, we have, you know, uh, well, a couple of things. Are, you, know, you, know, you've, you know, we've got one thing good about the Internet bubble was we've laid a lot of pipes, right? Now, those pipes are big pipes. The only the only thing that controls the through through with those pipes is switching, right? Optical switching, and uh, and the wonderful thing about optical switching of photonics is it's doubling about every nine to twelve months. So you know we're seeing great improvements in, in switching, and therefore great improvements in bandwidth. Uh, so you know it depends on just how much you want to spend. Uh, uh, but but what we found is we can get it down to. Um, even even under under current ISD lines of things, uh, down to uh, you know a, 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 a few uh, uh, milliseconds, and it and you know there there is a line, 
where people are uncomfortable. It depends on what you're doing, what procedure you're doing. But, but we're not going to start out with telesurgery. We're going to start out with mentoring, helping, assisting, because one, I'm not sure there's a great story at this point in time. There will be at some point in time of telesurgery. I think if you can afford a million-dollar system, you can afford a surgeon. But there's a lot of advantage for training and teaching, and that's where we'll start. And there, and there the time delay is not a, a, an issue. Last question. Okay. We haven't heard from a lady. Um, well, it's a good question. Some hospitals, like Henry Ford, uh, literally stopped taking initially. just said, we're not going to take uh, insurance. You can worry about your insurance, and it's $10,000. And you know what? Patients were willing to pay that. Um, but I don't think that long-term is, is, is the solution. Uh, technology like this always starts out more expensive. Uh, I, I, yeah, almost anything, whether you're talking about a plasma screen TV, or whatever, it always starts out more expensive. But as volume builds, it becomes less expensive. To the degree we can reduce complications, which is a huge cost, shorten uh, surgery time. And if you want to talk about the broader economics, get the person back to work quickly. Uh, you know, uh, they become productive in society. You know, if, if, if the problem with our, with our whole medical cost system, the way we measure it, we, we compartmentalize everything. And so we don't optimize anything. We have a very unoptimized system. But, uh, but right now, uh, robotic surgery is more expensive. Will it be 10 years from now? I, I suspect it will not. And, 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 I, and even today, actually today, major centers that do a lot of it say their costs are lower. Well, thanks. That's fabulous. Thank you.